I've been, um, <clears throat> I've been following the Elon Musk and Twitter saga like it's a drug. Anybody else? <laughs> I'm, I'm all in on this, man. It is, uh, I can't get enough of it. I don't know if, you may not be familiar with what I'm talking about, so if you haven't been paying close attention, I will get you up to speed. Actually, you've probably been paying close attention to way more meaningful things. So if you're doing that, if you're way more mature and wise than I am, I will catch you up to speed with the things that I find interesting and that consume my time. Uh, Elon Musk, the richest man in the world, the Tesla guy, the guy who like reinvented the car, who sends those cars on rockets to space, who then lands those rockets back on Earth, like this guy, richest man in the world. Um, he... Uh, he has some concerns about uh, Twitter, which is a social media platform, and he concerns about kind of the free speech on it. He was worried that, that there was some people who were kind of bending it in a particular direction that was away from freedom of speech, and that was a concern to him. He's an avid Twitter user. And so um, Elon Musk, richest guy in the world, took $44 billion, and uh, he bought Twitter. That's wild, right? <laughs> Like, we've got a couple billionaires in here, right? Put your hands, raise your hand. So 44 times, yeah, Seth, right? 44 times that. I don't know about you, I'm like a weird guy. I, um, I uh, sometimes, I go through seasons where I get addicted to looking at yachts on Instagram. Anybody else? Anybody else? No, I'm the, you're, okay. And you're like, whoa, these are crazy, right? And like, what you learn is that there's really only like 10 yachts that they just take pictures of over and over again. And uh, some of those expensive yachts, they're like worth $500 million, right? And you're like, wow. And you're like, if I had $44 billion, I would probably buy 88 yachts. That's what I would do, right? Elon Musk, he bought Twitter. He bought a social media platform. It's just wild what's going on. And um, he subsequently fired a bunch of staff. And then a bunch of staff quit because they like, think, think he's, a, he's a bad dude or an evil dude. It's just this weird, crazy thing. There's people on both sides of the political spectrum who are freaking out. You should watch it. And if you've seen, you may have seen like mainstream news articles about it where they're freaking out. Everyone's freaking out right now. It's a, it's a really bizarre thing that's happening in the world. Side note, like if, you're, if you watch mainstream media and they're like saying stuff about it, like you should read it and listen and then you should also go watch what's happening because it's, it's helpful to see what both sides are doing. And the beauty of Twitter is that, is that like somebody can say something and then everyone else can say what they think. That's, that's actually, Twitter is the primary source of news in my life. I don't, know, I don't know, you might be laughing, but it's actually the most reliable source of news in my life. And that's actually because you can see an article posted and then you can see all these uh, contrary opinions by people who would be in the know. And you can actually discern, as long as nobody's messing with it, you can discern what seems to be the most reasonable, right? If there's differing opinions. And so what you have to do is you gotta wade through a bunch of garbage to get there, right? But it's your only option. Otherwise, you just have to trust what somebody's saying to you in one-way communication. So, so that's why I go there, and that's why I pay attention. And, and that's why this is, um, well, this is a really interesting thing that's happening in the world right now. It's a, the biggest shakeup in um, the social media world the last, since, it, since its inception 15 years ago with Facebook or whatever. Like, this is the biggest shift and change in the social media landscape in my lifetime. And I've grown up with this. This is, this is like I'm a native, right? And so it's interesting to watch and has real implications on the future. I tell you all that to say that, um, that Elon Musk now has the freedom and, and the power to ban people or unban people. And so he's been bringing back accounts that have been banned in the past uh, for things that they've said that have gone against Twitter policies. And some of those people include like 
Um, like the Babylon Bee, which anybody read the Babylon Bee? Like, oh yeah, is it recent for you? Because I've been reading the Babylon Bee for like 10 years. They used to just make fun of Joel Osteen and like bass players on worship bands. It's a satire, right? It's, it's a satirical, Christian satirical magazine or publication or whatever, and they were banned for saying dumb stuff. And there's other people who've been banned, like Jordan Peterson, Canadian psychologist, um, the former president of the United States, Donald Trump, was banned on Twitter, and, and, uh, and, and Elon Musk has reinstated some of these accounts, and that's what I think is like the fire, you know? It's, you're just like throwing fuel on a fire. But it's really interesting to see it happen. One of the people who, um, who, who Elon Musk unbanned off Twitter was a guy named Kanye West. Goes by Ye. You know Ye, right? And uh, Ye, he, um, he says some things that some people think are just like insensitive and odd and confusing. Other people think are like hateful and dangerous, right? And, and so it's, it's, it's just a confusing thing to, to figure out what you feel about what Ye says. And, uh, and uh, you know, I understand both sides of that. But he was banned from, from Twitter for saying some off-color things. Some, more recently, he said some things against the Jewish community. And and, uh, and, and hearing them, I was like, yeah, that's, that ain't good. <laughs> like, uh, you don't say that. And, uh, and so he's, you know, since then, I, I've, I've tried to follow it and pay attention. Not that it matters that much, but he's, he's kind of like, he's, he's backtracked a little bit, and he's apologized to people who he thinks he needs to apologize to. And so he was reinstated. His account was reinstated recently. The first thing that Ye said, he tweeted, since coming back to Twitter was Shalom. Shalom. Matthew, uh, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, he says, uh, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be children of God. We've been teaching through Matthew chapter 5 for a little while now, uh, for quite a few months. And uh, this section of scripture is what we call the Beatitudes, or what somebody calls the Beatitudes. It's, it's uh, the section of scripture where Jesus talks about um, the kinds of people who will be blessed in the kingdom of God. God. He's laying, he's laying out a new kingdom ethic, and he's saying, like, this is, this is what will be the standard to live into or live up to, or at least this is what people in the New Covenant community, the church, are, um, are known for and are blessed for. It's not as much a list like, do this and don't do this. I don't know if you grew up reading the Beatitudes, and it sounds a whole lot like, be this and don't be this. If you want to get blessed, then do this, right? But that's actually not what it is. It's not necessarily a new law like the law was. And we read about Paul. Paul talks about that. We're going to address that later, about how it's not necessarily a new law, because that actually didn't create um, the transformation that Jesus wanted to um, see happen. So it's not necessarily a law. It's not necessarily a list of things to, to follow. It's more of a description of the th- kinds of people who will be blessed in the future kingdom. That's, that's what we've been saying about it. So in order to understand that, we've been talking about what does blessed mean? What does it mean to be blessed? What does blessing mean? Uh, because I don't know about you, but, but we don't use that word that much in, in today, um, today's language. Like sometimes we, on Twitter we post hashtag blessed, but we don't even know really what that means. And we, don't, we talk about being blessed, like, oh, that was a, that was a real blessing. But like, usually it's like, like older Christian people who say that, right? It's not a common word that's used. So what we've been doing is trying to unpack the word blessing and gain some understanding of it. Because in order to understand what Jesus is saying here, he's saying blessed are thee. It's a pretty important thing to understand. And so we're going to do that a little bit more this morning. And uh, then we're going we're gonna to wrap up by looking at uh, one, of the, one of the last Beatitudes that we'll address later. A guy named Ronald Rollheiser, he's a Canadian Catholic theologian who's he's read pretty broadly. 
And uh, I was just finishing up a book called Sacred Fire that he wrote, and uh, it got to a chapter on blessing. I thought this was actually really compelling, and, uh, and it was a, a very clear um, definition of blessing. He says, to bless someone literally means to speak well of him or her. More deeply, it means to see someone's energy. I think what he means by energy is like their personhood, who they are, and honor it as a source of joy and delight rather than as an intrusion or a threat. What I think he's getting at here is um, that to be blessed is not necessarily like a state of like possessing something individually. Sometimes when we hear the language of blessing, we think that somebody has something that others don't have, right? So we think more like material possessions. You think like Elon Musk is blessed to buy Twitter instead of 88 yachts, right? Like that's, a, we think in those terms. And, and what he's saying is that's not necessarily what to be blessed means. It doesn't not mean that. It also sometimes in our language we think of to be blessed is like to uh, possess something special, like a feeling, like a special feeling, right? So if you say like, oh, I feel blessed this morning, it's kind of like um, feel happy, maybe you're at peace or like joyful or, or something good happened, right? And so it's a, it's a feeling, it's an emotion sometimes we think of uh, when we think of blessed, we think of it through the lens of like an individual who's fortunate or is feeling happy, right? And what we talked about earlier in the series is that the actual word blessed uh, does mean that. It means, it means fortune. You could actually translate blessed are thee as fortunate are thee. These are the fortunate people, the people in the kingdom of God. Fortunate are those who are meek. Fortunate are those who, who, um, who are peaceful. Fortunate are those who are merciful. You can, you can actually translate the word as that. You can also translate the word as happy. We did talk about that. We talked about how the word actually would translate fairly well as happy. Happy are those who um, are merciful. Happy are those who, um, you know, hunger and thirst for righteousness. To, to be happy, right? It's actually a decent translation. But, uh, but I think it actually, it's, it's more than that. It means more than that. In the West, we're so individualistic that when we hear these terms, we think through the lens of an individual. We think to be blessed is to individually possess a feeling or a material thing. But um, in the context the scripture was written, it was written in the first century in a Jewish culture where they were a lot more collectivistic than we were, right? And some of you guys actually come from more of an honor-shame culture, which would be like a collectivist culture. And in their culture, the greatest blessing wasn't necessarily material wealth and wasn't necessarily a feeling of in, like an internal emotion. The greatest blessing in a collectivist culture is actually a good reputation. To have a good reputation means that you're blessed. And so that's what Ronald's saying here. Ronald Rojas is saying, he's saying, um, to be blessed is when someone speaks positively of you. When someone speaks kindly of you. You To be spoken well of is actually the greatest of all possessions. To be spoken well of is the good life. To be spoken well of is the greatest source of joy and peace and tranquility in our life. And, and I don't think this is just for collectivist thinking people. I actually think this is a very human thing. Like I, I, would, I would venture to suggest that the thing that you care most about is how people speak of you. I would venture to suggest that the thing you care most about is actually your reputation, not like a popularity contest, like raising up the hierarchy for power and control, but actually what you want at the end of your life is for people to be at your funeral and to just speak well of you. So this was a kind person. This was a good person. This was an honorable person. They did the right thing. You want a good 
reputation. It's what we're all striving towards. It's what we're all uh, hoping for. If you're married, you know this. If you're married, you know this well. If you're honest, you will do anything for your spouse just for them to like take delight in you and to say something kind to you. Like you will, you will make all the money in the world. You will, you will, you will hang Christmas lights in November in the in the snow in the rain because your wife asked you to. You will clean up. You'll do the dishes. You'll you will you will work tirelessly. And what you want, seriously, what you want, right? You just want your spouse to like say, "I see you. I see you. Thank you. I appreciate that." They take delight in you, to speak well of you, to recognize that you put in work, you put in effort, you put in care. And so you're delighted in, you're spoken well of by, by your spouse. You'll do anything for that. I think that this actually can cure, I think blessing people can actually cure so much of the challenges that we experience interpersonally and culturally. Like I think, man, sometimes uh, one of the reasons why I'm, why I still think spending time with youth is so important is because they don't hear very often simple blessings. Like sometimes they come from homes where they don't hear it at all. Sometimes they don't have grandparents who have ever said anything kind about them. Sometimes they go to a school where the peers aren't mature enough to do that and their teacher doesn't feel like it's a responsibility to bless them. So where are they going to be blessed? Where is somebody in their life just looking them in the eye, knowing them and telling them, hey, I see you and, and, I, and I love you and I honor you. That's all a teenager needs. That's all a child needs, right? I think you can heal broken relationships, mend emotional wounds. It could solve wars and workplace conflict and, and estrange children, just blessing. By saying, I see you, I know you, and I delight in you. So, so if that is a better understanding of the word blessed, then what we should do is we should read the Beatitudes again as we wrap up the series through that lens. This is God, the God of the universe, recorded in scripture, the words of Jesus Christ. He says this. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. He says, I see the poor in spirit and I speak well of them. You can picture God on the throne with whoever God would be talking to. Saying, I speak well of that person. Blessed are the meek. I speak well of the meek. Those who give up a lot, who don't say what they want to say, who are truly and genuinely humble, which is a lot of hard work over a long period of time to grow into that kind of person. He says, I bless them. I speak well of them. I speak well of those who mourn. Those who are on their knees for their children praying every day, the God of the universe who knows all things says, I bless you. I speak well of you. Those are the people who the God of the universe is looking down on and saying, there's honor. I speak well of that person. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who, are, who said no to something last night. Did you say no to something last night and that was hard? God looks on you and he says, I honor that. Did you say yes to getting up in the morning and, and, and just spending some time with God this week, like actually just hungry and thirsting for righteousness? The God of the universe speaks well of you. He looks and goes, that is, that is my child. I love them. Those who practice mercy and who are merciful, and those who are pure in heart, Pastor Ian talked about this last week, those who their faith is just simple enough to say, God, I trust you, and I'm gonna live into whatever it is that you have for me. God looks and goes, I love that person. 
bless them. This morning we're zeroing in on verse chapter nine or uh, verse chapter five, verse nine. It says, "Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called children of God." This is the God of the universe. He says, "I look at peacemakers and I and I bless them. I see them, I know them, and I speak well of them." The peacemakers. That's what that's what Jesus says. William Barclay says this. Uh, on this topic, on this verse. He says, the Beatitude says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. What it means is, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be doing a God-like work. Those who make peace are engaged in the very work which the God of peace is doing. The word peace here is uh, the Greek word arene, and it's actually, um, it's a translation, it's a Greek translation of the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom is a very uh, common word used in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, every Jewish person, this is like an everyday word for them. They would understand this word. They understand the meaning of this word. This is a every 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 week at Sabbath they recite this. Um, their their whole pursuit is shalom. Their whole goal in life is to reach a state of shalom and to bring that to those around them. Hence, Kanye West tweet, shalom, right? Now, Kanye was a little bit more like seeking some sort of reconciliation or trying to like calm the waters a little bit, which, which it has a little bit of that meaning to it. Some of our, um, our 21st century understandings of, of peace are, are more like the absence of conflict. I mean, like when you hear peace, when I hear peace, I think of it like, okay, there is conflict and now I restored to non-conflict, right? So when we hear peace, it's typically what we what we think of. We think of making peace offerings like, like Kanye seems to be doing on Twitter. We think of like, we don't want to fight anymore. So you think of peace as not fighting anymore, easing tension and wanting civility. We think of peace through a, like a post-World I and World War II um, lens, especially in the Canadian West. So that's usually where our mind goes. We think of be, to be a peacemaker is to, is to use your influence and to use your power to resolve like a, a conflict or to break up uh, war. So that's the picture that we get. And the, the scriptures uses shalom, peace, uh, in that context too. That, that's, that is the understanding of peace in the scriptures or, or partially. Shalom does mean, when you read in the Old Testament and when it's translated in the New Testament, it means to not do harm. It means to, uh, to endure something, even though like if somebody does something to you, you don't repay it in kind, you endure it. That would, that would be... Um, the language of shalom would mean that. It would also mean to, um, like to put down your sword, right? Shalom. It's often used also as um, well, a, a, a description of, like a, of a covenant between two people, right? They make, a, they make a commitment, a covenant, a pact or something, right? So between two people, there's shalom, there's tranquility, there's peace, there's, there's like we agree to not fight. We agree to trade peacefully and prosper together and defend one another, right? It's the kind of language of shalom. So it means all those things. However, the word shalom, peace, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, translates the Rene, it actually has a much deeper meaning to it. Shalom in the scriptures isn't just a negative statement, right? Now you may think peace sounds like a positive thing, but, it's, but when we understand it, we understand it as a negative statement, the non-existence of something, the non-existence of conflict. That's what we think of when we hear peace. But shalom, shalom doesn't assume that the norm is conflict. Shalom doesn't assume that the norm is war or that the norm is tension. Shalom is actually a restoration back to how things ought to be. That there is a higher good. 
Shalom is the higher good. That the standard, that the good state is actually peace. And that conflict is a breaking away from that. And shalom is a restoration back to how things are supposed to be. It's a state of well-being. It's a state of uh, success. It's a state of, of health and delight. It's, it's not just a state of non-conflict. Uh, St. Augustine, he says this. He says, the peace of all things is the tranquility of order. That is shalom. The shalom of all things is actually the tranquility of order. Things as they're supposed to be. Things as they were intended to be. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, he says something similar. He says, peace is the work of justice indirectly. So when we think of peace, we think of justice indirectly um, removing obstacles. Uh, so justice is removing obstacles to peace. So he says, it's, it's the work of justice indirectly, but the work of charity directly. Since charity, according to its very nature, causes peace. What he's saying there, I think, is that um, it's actually doing charity that produces the shalom. It's not just, it's not just justice setting things right that are broken, but it's doing the good, right? This is, you see the distinction? It may seem like a minor thing, but it is, a, it is a major distinction in how we're understanding the language of peace and the wording of peace. Now, William Barclay says, blessed are those who make this world a better place for everyone to live in. That's how Barclay would um, retranslate the, uh, the beatitude that we're reading this morning. Blessed are those who make the world a better place for everyone to live in. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. So then the question is, okay, well, if that's the case, if they're who God speaks of well, and they're who God looks down on and speaks um, kindly of and honors those who make peace, then what do we have to do to make peace? What does it mean to be a peacemaker? What do we do to be a peacemaker? Might be the question. We mentioned um, that the Beatitudes are less of a set of rules to obey, and they're more of a description of a kind of people that will exist as the kingdom of God grows. So, so do we as Christians, do we set out to make peace, might be the question. And will that produce a blessing? Do we go and force peace, make peace, resolve conflict, and then are we going to be blessed as a result of that? Is usually where our mind goes. D.L. Moody, he's a great American evangelist and Protestant theologian. He said this, and I thought this was really, really helpful. He said, a great many people are trying to make peace, but that has already been done. God has not left it for us to do. All that we have to do is enter into it. Okay, that sounds abstract. What does that actually mean? I think, um, I think Moody is pulling from Ephesians chapter 2 here. So if you have a Bible, you can open it to Ephesians chapter 2, or you can read on the screen, because we'll have it up there for you. This is the Apostle Paul talking. The Apostle Paul, some say the Apostle Paul is like, Jesus was the founder of the church and the Apostle Paul is like the CEO and president, first one. Like, like Darren, he's the Darren Herbold of the New Testament. He, he asked me to say it once and I'm saying it for him. You are the Apostle Paul of the CMA. Um, so some people think of the Apostle Paul as that guy, right? Like Jesus and the Apostle Paul, he wrote a lot of the New Testament, right? And so he kind of guided the, um, the church in, in doctrine how to think about a lot of the things that Jesus said, right? And so this is what he's saying about this specifically. We read about Jesus, we read from Jesus' words, blessed are those who are peacemakers. And this is what Paul says about peace itself. Uh, I'm going to start in verse 11. The screen starts at verse 13. 
In verse 11, it says, Therefore, remember at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. Basically, the New Testament, or the, the scriptural narrative is that God chose the people, Israel, to, um, to uh, enter into relationship in order to restore the world. And so Israel was both the vehicle in which God was going to use, but also those who received the blessing, right? They were part of the family of God and the people of God, and Gentiles weren't, right? So that's what he's saying. He's saying at one time that was the case, but now, verse 13, in Christ Jesus, you once were far off and have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Once it was distant from you and removed from you, and now it's actually close to you because of the blood of Jesus. In verse 14, for he himself is our peace. He himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself a new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The hostility that was created between the Jews and the Gentiles wasn't going to be killed by them just uh, urging and mighting towards peace. It was actually going to be found in both of them identifying with Jesus and the work that he did on the cross. It was, it was the access that they both had now to the God of the universe through Jesus Christ that would actually produce the peace because he says Jesus is the peace. It says in verse 17, he says, and he came and preached peace, shalom to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access to one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. According to Paul, peace is not just a state of being achieved by following a law or a rule. He actually said that didn't produce peace. That's the whole Israel narrative, is they had the law, and they failed at following it, but it was never sufficient to produce actual peace, actual shalom, restoring things back to how they were always intended to be. He says that for Paul, for Paul, Paul says that peace is a person, and that's, um, I think that's pretty compelling. Shalom is a person, and his name is Jesus. It's found in a person, and his name is Jesus. That's the Christian belief. It's through Jesus that we have, reconcil we have reconciliation with God, and that's the first step to peace is being reconciled between, reconciliation between you and God. And the work of uh, restoring shalom in our lives, putting things back to how they were intended to be personally, that is through reconciliation with God. And God does that. He restores shalom to our lives. And through us, the church, that God is bringing the shalom to the rest of the world. Through Jesus, we are being built together as the temple, he says. The dwelling place of God. And where that is happening, there is peacemaking. Where that is happening, there is peacemaking present. That's kind of the idea. 
Robert Jameson, a Scottish theologian, he said this, when the reconciliation actually takes place and one has peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, even the peace of God which passeth all understanding, the peace receivers become transformed into peace diffusers. God is thus seen reflected in them, and by the family likeness, these peacemakers are recognized as the children of God. In other words, as we seek peace with God, as we seek peace in our relationship with God, as God restores the shalom to our lives and sets us back how we were always intended to be, then we produce peace in the world around us. We become peacemakers. And it's those people who God speaks well of. It's those people who God looks at. He says, I see you, I love you, and I affirm you. The overarching theme of this series so far has been that we don't do the Beatitudes. We actually grow in Jesus, we abide in Christ, we deepen our relationship with God, and if we do that, we become the Beatitudes. And when we become the Beatitudes, when we become the things that Jesus describes, God looks down on us and says, I love them. I affirm them. I celebrate that. That is good. That is what I intended. That's what I want. He speaks well of us. The way forward to building the kingdom of God here in Milton, in heaven, or in Milton as it is in heaven, is not just by missional effort. We've done the missional model of evangelism for long enough to know that it doesn't produce any power if it's not fueled by a deepening relationship with Jesus. We put a lot of effort in over the many years, churches I've been involved with, churches you've been involved with, if we've known that we just devolves into strategies, right? And it treats people transactionally. It's not connected and initiated by a deep relationship with Jesus. We've done the social justice work globally, locally, and globally. We've done the social justice work and if we are not doing that connected primarily to the source of shalom, the source of peace, it just fizzles out, it just devolves into secular humanist activity, and then we remove God altogether, and, well, then it gets weird. We've done the theologizing, haven't we? We've done the theologizing, we've done the, the doctrine thing, and, and we continue to do that. And, and, um, and what ends up happening is we just create this division over hermeneutics and and we, we create disunity in the body of Christ, even though Jesus keeps telling us over and over, like, I want you to be unified, and, and it matters so much to us. But if we're doing that without the primary source of shalom, of life, of peace in our life, from a deep and deepening relationship with Jesus, then it just, it just creates a mess, doesn't it? The way that we do this, the way that we become peacemakers, the way that we become merciful, the way that we become the kinds of people who hunger and thirst for righteousness is by communing with Jesus and deepening our relationship with Jesus. And this isn't new to us. This is not a surprise. This is not anything you haven't heard before. It's not a fad. It's not a strategy. It's not a methodology. It's none of those things. There's always a new season, and there's unique challenges in that season. And what we need to do as a church is we need to face those unique challenges, engage in those unique challenges, and then double and triple and quadruple down on the things that have always brought people close to God for centuries. And that's where we're heading as a church. We're heading in the direction of practicing the ways of Jesus again because we seem to have forgotten how to do that. We seem to have forgotten the ways of Jesus and the spiritual disciplines that have brought life and vitality and, 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 and relationship with Jesus 
for history in the past. And so for the next quite a few months here, for the next quite a few years here at this church, we are going to be continually stepping into practicing the ways of Jesus and the spiritual discipline, Sabbathing and learning how to do it and doing it well. A lot of Christians who've been Christians for 20 years have talked to me about how they don't know how to just spend time with God. They don't know what to do. They don't know like sit and pray. So you mean, we've been Christians for 20 years and it was like, it's awkward for us to sit and quiet and pray. Pastors struggle with that. I struggle with that. I don't remember the last time I fasted and you might be like, yeah, obviously, right? <laughs> I, sh- I just don't, it's, you know, I- I've lost my way. I don't know how to put my stinking phone down on a day off, right? I don't know how to do that. I just don't know how to not work or at least not be connected. I, I just, it, it's, it's a struggle for me to get up every morning and pray and spend any time in scriptures that's not studying for a sermon. That's a fight. It's my full-time job to do that. It's a fight. And if that's the case with me, it's probably the case with you, I imagine. This is the way forward. The way forward is learning what has always worked in the church and what has always developed a deepening, abiding relationship with Jesus and learning how to do that in the context that we're in. As we make peace with Jesus and we live into that peace, we bring shalom to Milton as it is in heaven. That's what God does through that. And he looks down and he says, I love you, I see you, I delight in you. Keep doing it. You're doing a good job. You're doing the work I made you for. He looks at us and he says, you're my child and I'm pleased by you. That's what it means. Blessed are the peacemakers. That's what it means. As we go into this Advent season, when we think about peace, let's think about the life in which God intended in our lives and in the communities that we live in. And what does it look like to live into a relationship with Jesus in such a way that he forms us to bring about that shalom in our homes, in our families, in our relationships, in the community that we're living in. Let me pray. God, we're, um, it seems so it seems so out of touch. I don't know. It seems simple. It seems obvious, Lord. And, and then it seems like, seems like our, can we even get there? The bar is high in, in some sense. But God, we're also like, we're, it's your grace that it's not a set of rules to follow or obey. It's your grace that it is just something you produce in us when we abide in you. And Lord, if we can just get that, we struggle so much with achievement. We struggle so much with them. Um, with effort and willpower to, to create and to control and all you're asking us to do over and over, week by week as we study your scriptures is to spend time with you, abide in you, focus on you, give up other things to just be with you and that you'll produce this in us if we do that. And then we will be blessed. And it comes with all sorts of promises. What a gift it is to not only live into the life that you intended for us, but to actually receive promises from you that we'll receive mercy from you and others if we become merciful, that we'll be called children of God if we become peacemakers. That's such a gift that you not only have a life for us to live, but you promise us amazing things if we're able to live into that and become that, and then you use us for the greatest thing. You use us for the greatest thing, which is to bring your love to the world around us. I pray that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us live into that in this Advent series or season coming up. And then, and then from there, as we're strategizing and planning, what does it look like to form a community around abiding in you, Jesus, and practicing the ways of Jesus? I pray for clarity from your Holy Spirit in that endeavor. 
I also thank you for the board being here today, God. That's a gift. I actually bless, I, Lord, I want you to, I am asking you to, to bless them for the work that they're doing, not just on the board, but there's a reason why they are on a board, and it's because for years and years and years, they've been living into you. They've been choosing you over so many other things, and you have blessed them. You've given them a good reputation. You speak well of them, and others speak well of them, and that is an incredible gift to live with that blessing. And it also comes with great responsibility. You've equipped them to have that responsibility. So we trust them and we ask, Lord, that, that you provide others around them to affirm them and encourage them and bless them for the time that they spent meeting and strategizing and thinking and praying about the future of our denomination and our family. And more so, the future of the church in Canada. Empower them to lead well and equip them to do it by the power of your Holy Spirit. We say this in the name of Jesus, who is our King and our Lord. Amen.